I'm going to ask you to do this something, do something this morning that I've never asked before. I don't think a teacher has ever asked this, but I would like you to attempt something that is, I think, very difficult to do. I want you this morning to act like you have never heard in your life the story of the birth of Jesus. So I'm going to ask you to be stupid for a little bit here. I'm going to ask you to forget everything you've ever heard, and I want you to put on new eyes and new ears and act like this is the first time you've heard it. And so evaluate it from that perspective. And the reason why I'm asking you to do that, because I think if you do hear it from a new vantage point, other than the sentimentality of, oh, I love Christmas and snow and, and lights and you really try to hear the story, you'll see underneath the surface of why we need this story so badly. So imagine, you're living up in a, in a mountain in a cabin, snowy up there, and your family's up there, and the reason you live there is because you're just sick and tired of this world. So you want to pull away, live on your own, you've got all kind of food up there, stocked up there, and you're just, you've quit living, you're done. All of a sudden, I knock on your door. And you open the door and you say, yeah, what do you want? And I said, hey, I'm coming because I got great news. There's a new king. A new king has come. And this new king, he's going to bring us new promises of a great new kingdom. He's going to bring us peace and finally justice. And so the person that opens the door says, um... All right, all right, I'll let you in. Come on, here's a seat by the fire. Tell us the story. So I bring out of my bag this impressive-looking document. I mean, it's got goatskin leather. It's really nice. So I bring out this document. You gather your kids in, and they all sit on the floor around. And they say, tell us about this king. We want to hear about this king. You say you have a new story about a king. And for those of you who want to follow along, if you have one of these impressive documents. Open up to Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18. And it begins like this. Once upon a time, there was a king named Jesus, and he was born in a lowly little house. Kind of says that in verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus, the Christ, the King, took place in this way. So it's like once upon a time. Let me tell you a story. So the kids are gathered around. They're really excited to hear the story. So I begin reading from this very impressive document given to me by the King to declare to you. This is his story. Remember, you never heard the story before. So hear it with new ears. Here's how it goes. When Jesus' mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, so betrothed means in our language engaged, but in the Jewish culture betrothed was they were engaged for a whole year. They couldn't do any, they couldn't sleep together or anything. They had to remain pure for a whole year. Then they were brought to his house where they finally could consummate the marriage. But at this time that this is written, now his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph before they slept together in the same bed where they had sex together. That's sort of, it's not written that blatantly, but that's what it means. Remember, you're hearing this with new ears. 
before they slept together, she, Mary, was found to be with child. So she was pregnant. And she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Godhead. You could read it like that. Keep reading. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, a righteous man, he was unwilling. He didn't, he didn't want her to be put to shame. It means public shaming. Because in a Jewish culture, if you're found to be with child and you weren't married yet, there's a reason to be stoned. I mean, executed. So he didn't want her to be publicly shamed. So in his mind, he, resol- he resolved to kind of divorce her, send her back home to her mom and dad quietly and be done with the engagement. It's over. That's what he wanted to do. But as he considered these things, behold, which means listen, listen, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, which means he's from the lineage of David's king lineage. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, For that which is conceived in her is from the third person of the Godhead, from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, which is the prophet Isaiah, 700 years earlier, which he wrote, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which means God's with us, God's dwelling among us. When Joseph woke from the sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, meaning he continued to stay engaged to Mary, took Mary home, but he didn't sleep with her until she'd given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. That's where the story ends. So I close the book and I say, kids, what do you think? And the husband Takes a sip of coffee. Scratches his chin, looks at his wife, and looks back and says, Are you serious? <laughs> Are you kidding me? You want me to believe that story? What do you think, I'm gullible? No, 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 this really happened. And then, I, I mean, imagine a guy who heard this for the first time. Okay, so, if I get this straight. Let's say I believe it. I see some major, major plot lines in this story. I mean, you want me to suspend disbelief? But there's four things that really bother me about this story. So I'd ask these things. Why, number one, why can't the child just be Joseph? It says he's a righteous man. He's from the right lineage. Why does, why isn't he involved? Because don't you know that's how children are born? Just wondering. Second question I have is, what does that mean? The Holy Spirit helped Mary conceive. I don't even know if I want to consider that. That's odd. That's really bizarre. Third question I have about this is, do you know that a virgin who is pregnant is an oxymoron? You know what an oxymoron is? My kids used to tell a story. One bright day in the middle of the night, two dead boys got up to fight. Do you know dead boys can't get up and fight because they're dead? A virgin cannot have a baby because she's never been with anybody. It's an oxymoron. You want me to believe this story? And then the fourth thing, of course, is to me the 
It's the biggest flaw in your story. I'm looking, you, you came here knocking on my door saying a new king has come. He's going to usher in a new kingdom. He's going to bring peace. In my mind, when I hear that, he's going to go and cut off all the heads of his enemies, get all the gold back, and I'm going to, we're finally going to have a good political system again. It's going to be great. And you and tell me, he's come to t- save people from sin. Sounds like my fourth grade teacher that made me write on the blackboard, I will not pass notes a hundred times. So he's come to what? Make, what, make me behave? That's why, is that why he's come? I don't understand this story. And truthfully, if you heard this for the first time, I think that's really what you'd say. We are so used to the story, we don't understand how strange this story is. And in the strangeness is the message of the story, which we zoom right past. And let me kind of show you what I mean by that. If you remember last week, last week we said the genealogy had three promises that were involved, actually three groups of people. First of all, we had Abraham and David. Abraham represented the chosen people who were called out from the rest of the world, and this people's chosen because they're going to be the great nation that God's going to make. Their name's going to be great. All nations of the earth are going to be blessed. That's what we said last week. That's promise number one. So they're going to be a great nation. Promise number two was to David. David represented the kingdom. And to David, the promise was, you are going to have a child who's going to reign on the throne forever. So if you look at these two promises, this is really all we want. I want, I am so sick of politics, I finally want a good king. Just rule, good king. That's all I want. That's really all I want. This is all anybody wants, to be part of a nation that's amazing, can't be defeated, and is king who's good will rule forever. That's all we want. But there was one more promise, if you remember. And I'm going to offer to you today, it's the most important promise, and I'm even going to take it a step further. This next promise, if this promise doesn't take place, these two promises are impossible. Let me show you what I mean. So there was a guy named Jeconiah. Remember, he's put in exile. If you want to know what exile is, Pastor Jared did a great job. He did a devotional Friday. Go and listen to that. But the third promise was to Jeconiah in the exile, and the promise has, listen to what it says, I will bring them back, mean bring them out of exile back to the land. I will plant them there, meaning establish them there. They'll never be taken out again. And the third thing is, I want to give them a heart that knows the Lord. Now there is something, there's an issue here that is kind of in between the lines that you need to think on. Why does he need to give people a heart to know the Lord? Because if he doesn't, they won't have a heart that wants to know the Lord. And a heart that doesn't want to know the Lord is called a hard heart. A hard heart is a heart that is obstinate, self ruled. I don't want anybody to tell me what to do. And if that promise is not taken care of, the other promises mean nothing. So you can put it like this. If you don't first cure the heart, a person will never, ever bend the knee. And I think this is what's missed. Most people miss this. 
Most people go right past it and they say, I don't need to change. All I need is a good king and a good nation. That's all we need is a right political system. If we get the right guy in there, everything will be great. And this is saying, no. Look at Romans 8.7. Go to Romans 8.7. I call Romans 8.7 in the New Testament one of those verses that you have to you have to almost put it down as a foundation stone to see the world rightly. I just got some glasses a couple weeks ago and they had that blue filter in them. So when you put on the glasses, it takes out the blue to help you rest your eyes a little bit. It's a filter. I think Romans 8-7 is a biblical filter that helps you see the world right. And most people never put this on. And look what it says. This is what it says in the ESV. For the mind, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's laws. Indeed, it cannot. Here's how the NLT writes it. For the sinful nature of man, that's the nature that we're born with, the sinful nature of man is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws and it never will. It never will. So what he's saying is because human nature is riddled with sin, we're hostile. It means we're enemies to God. And number two, we don't want to submit to him. One commentator writer, Frank Avalon, says the flesh has a double limitation. A double limitation. It neither submits to God nor is it able to do so. So if the heart isn't fixed, if the heart is not fixed, the throne will never be honored. Because really, truthfully, and you understand this, you do not like to be told what to do. That's your sinful nature. And we don't even like God to tell us what to do anymore. Isaiah said, even if, even if we're in heaven and God's on the throne, wicked people will still be wicked. The heart will still be rebellious. Let me give you an example of what I mean. I'll give you two examples. One to say how our nature reacts to God and the other one is what we think of his rule. So, my first story is my brother-in-law Jeff, when he was a little boy, about two or three, his mom gave him a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and the peanut butter, she put on too much crunchy peanut butter. So he's a young kid, he ate the peanut butter and jelly sandwich, ate it and it was too goopy and he couldn't eat it anymore. He started crying, and it was stuck. The peanut butter was stuck to the roof of his mouth, crunchy peanut butter. So his mom took one of those old dish rags and wiped it out of the roof of his mouth, and he kept crying. But from that moment, he hated peanuts for the rest of his life. Wasn't allergic, just hated them, hated them. And he'd tell me he hated them. So I did an experiment. Everybody's having some bowls of ice cream. I took a white bowl, nice ceramic bowl, took a little teeny Spanish peanut, put it on the bottom of the bowl, scooped three scoops of vanilla ice cream on top, poured a little bit of chocolate, and I brought it to him. He didn't know I made it. I brought it to him in the living room. He said, I can't eat that. I said, why not? Why can't you eat that? Because it has a peanut in it. I know it has a peanut in it, and I won't touch that. That's how the sinful heart feels about God. I don't want him. Then I give you another example, and this might hit a little bit more home. When I was a little boy, I was raised about five miles from 
the Ohio State Stadium, the Ohio State Buckeyes Stadium. So on Saturday morning, they would play the fight song, and it got into my blood. And my dad would say, hey, this weekend we're playing that rotten team from up north. They're kind of like the evil empire. So growing up, I can't tell you, there's no way for me to be able to cheer for this team with that ugly helmet that's blue with that yellow on it. I just can't do it. I tried one year, and I happened to move into that, the evil empire state. I tried one year. I really tried, and I just said, I, I don't, nope, I, I can't. I can't, nope. That's the sinful heart to the will of God, believe it or not. And some of you don't like that. There, I, I, can, hear the, I can hear the people arguing, saying, most people I know love God. They love God. I've even seen non-Christians cry when they look at a little manger scene. Like, they'll cry. See how they love God? Most people across the world love God. But most people, as long as God stays out of their business, gives them what they want, and makes things nice, they will love God. But that isn't God. That's called an idol. God is king. He wants to rule over your life. And yes, he wants to impose your, his will on you. And people don't like it. I could name specific actions he does not like. Like I know he doesn't, I know he doesn't like when we hoard our money. I know he doesn't like it. I know he doesn't. He wants us to be giving. I know he doesn't want us to be sexually exper- experimental. I know he doesn't. But I don't want him, he has no right to tell me what I do in my bedroom. He has no right to say how marriage is between a man and a woman. That's not his right. Why isn't that his right? Well, I don't like it. See, that's peanuts under ice cream. Do you see what I mean? He can't tell me what to do. That's sinful nature. And if I don't respond to him in loyalty, why would I want him to set up a throne and why do I want to be a part of his kingdom anyhow? See, the third promise is more important than the first two. But if he rules my heart, I can't wait for him to do whatever he tells me to do. So if you can see, the heart is why he came. The heart is why he came. And so to get the heart, two things need to happen. Number one is this one. This is what I call the first truth of the gospel story. Number one, the healer of the disease cannot be tainted by it. Meaning, if he is coming to rid the world of sin, he can't have any of it. He just can't. So if you go to Romans 5, you can read this on your own. Romans 5, 12 through 17. Paul says, from one man... Pass sin to every man. And man means from Adam, sin has passed to everybody. It's called seminal imputation of sin, meaning we believe the gene or the SIN positive disease is passed from the man to his children through birth, conception. So... Because of that, Joseph too was tainted 
with S-I-N positive. Yeah, he was a righteous man. He was a good man. He was a good man. But he could not be the father of the guy who's going to heal us, actually. And so that's why they needed, God needed to intervene. And so the Holy Spirit came to continue a, or start a new work. You could put it like this. In the Old Testament, very first book, book of Genesis, it says the Holy Spirit moved upon the face of the earth took the waters, took the chaos, and made a brand new world. The Holy Spirit made a new creation. Many commentators say the way this is written here in Matthew 18, where it says she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, he's doing a new work of creation. He's starting all over. Psalm 104.30 says, When you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the earth. So this is what is happening, is a new creative work of God to form a new man. And then also he uses Mary. And the reason she had to be a virgin is because she couldn't be tainted. So God, through Mary, basically crafted a child from her womb. And he had to be because he had to be an accurate representative for us. So when he died on the cross, it was legitimate. It was my payment. Couldn't be some weird alien. Had to be of this earth. We call this incarnation. God became flesh. Hebrews 2.17 said he had to be made in every way as we are. He went through every temptation some people even would say he had to be a baby first so he could say babies and he became an adolescent and he became a man so he could die for everybody accurately. I don't know how accurate that is. He just had to be of flesh. I like to look at it like this. I was, I was looking up here while I was singing. You have all the blue lights and then there's this one red light. See that one little red light? It's made of the same stuff but inside it is something a little different. I also noticed something else. There is a green light up here somewhere. I can't see it. Where is it? Back here? Right. Oh, here it is. When he touches me, I change colors. See how we always have props going all the time. This is called the hypostatic union. Hypostatic union means that baby that was born in Bethlehem is 100% God and he's 100% man and somehow he's in the one person do I understand it? No, but what I do understand is it had to happen if you're going to be healed from this rebellion. Had to. Second truth is this. For the son to be king, the royal lineage must still apply, which means he still did come to fulfill the first two promises. A son of David is going to come to rule. That's why if you look in Matthew verse Chapter 1, verse 20, he says, Joseph, your son of David, which is the right lineage. But there's a massive problem because he still needed Joseph to give him the right pedigree, but there's a massive problem. Joseph was a righteous man. Righteous means, righteous means he obeyed the Torah. Doesn't necessarily mean he's nice and kind. It means that he wanted to be lawful. He wanted to be lawful, but there's a scandal. How in the world 
can I take a woman who's already pregnant? He had to believe that either this was an act of God or somebody, some rogue guy snuck in, which everybody's going to believe. And according to law, Deuteronomy, adultery should be punished by execution. They would execute through stoning. But at the time, they were living under Roman law. A lot of, I was reading some commentators saying the Romans at that time looked down on stoning. So that's why he decided to just quietly divorce her. Just wipe his hands and be done with it. I don't want to be part of this. So this is a huge dilemma. What does he do? I mean, a lot of righteous people are like that. What do I do? I, don't, I, just, I just want to be pure. I want to be caught up into this crazy mess. Even if, it, even if I might be the will of God, I just want to be, a, I, don't want, I don't want this headache. Well, God, number one, intervenes into the actions and affairs of men. And he still does. Look at what happens in verse 20. As he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Who's that angel? Gabriel. Gabriel showed up to Mary also, but shows up to Joseph in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. She'll bear a son. And all this took place to fulfill the will of God. He already knew it was going to happen. He wrote about it in Isaiah 700 years before. This is called the sovereign will of God. God will accomplish what he's going to accomplish. He'll get it done. It's also called providence. He provides goodness to bless us all. I want you to notice something else, though. It's very important, just as important. God will also ask human beings to participate and trust him to carry out his will. And they have to make a real decision. They're not robots. So we have to be willing to help him fulfill that plan. That's why he went to Joseph. So if you look in what he says to Joseph, he says in verse 20, don't fear Joseph, because he knew Joseph had to make a choice. He had to make a decision. Somehow, God's sovereign will and man's agency together both matter. I don't understand it. But it's still true in your life. God has plans for your life, but you have to respond. It is a both and. Joseph wasn't a robot. He actually participated in helping the birth of the Savior. So the climax of the story really is verse 24. It's not necessarily even he's come to save people from the sins. To me, the tension builds in verse 24, the first half. When Joseph woke from his sleep. What, the question to the reader is, what is he going to do? Can you imagine being Joseph? You have this dream, so you're probably like, was that real? <laughs> um, you want me to take Mary and be embarrassed the rest of my life? You want that child to be called, you know what, a, that B word? I, you could probably feel the sweat. And as he takes off the covers and as he pulls his feet around, getting ready to touch, he's in a massive dilemma of faith that even affects you and me. What is he going to do? Will he take God at his word? Will he fall prey to fear? So in his mind, before his feet touch the floor, do I live by fear or faith? Do I live by the fear of men and what they're going to think of me? Or do I believe and trust 
in God and what he thinks of me. What do I do? Fear of faith. You have this all, all the time. Do I really believe God's got things under control or do I just quit? Do I just quit? Because it's, sometimes it's not fun trusting God. It's not fun hanging in there. Fear or faith. It is the human dilemma. And God and man, God's sovereignty, man's will, are both standing on the edge of that needle. But look what it says. When Joseph woke up from sleep, he did. That's called faith. Faith always has to act. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and he took his wife. So how does faith work? It works the same way for everybody. First thing faith does is faith believes God's word. What's fascinating about this in verse 22 says all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken to the prophet. So God said it in the word earlier, his scriptures, and now he's using his scriptures to give Joseph confidence that it's in his will. He does the same thing for you. He gives us promises. Do you take them or not? Do you live by them or not? So if you believe, the next thing is you need to live in accordance to what you believe. To actually step out. So that's why it says, he did as the Lord commanded him, and then he took his wife so that he didn't embarrass her. He kept her as his wife. He knew, not, he knew her not, means he didn't sleep with her until she gave birth to the son. And he did the job of the father. He gave Jesus his title, son of Joseph. He named him Jesus. Who did? Joseph did. In the Jewish culture, the man named the child, gave him his, basically his name, his heritage, his legacy. But here's the third thing about faith, and you won't notice it too much because we just, we just smile and cry at this story as we sing rocking around the Christmas tree. But for Joseph, he had to accept the immediate costs. He knew if he's going to follow God, it's going to hurt. The beautiful thing, though, when you believe... There's a, there's a verse in James that talks about sin. When sin conceives, it gives birth to evil. But on the same sense, when faith conceives, when you start living it, it starts giving birth in your life and around you to salvation. Life changes. The Holy Spirit actually starts creating new things. So, before you can actually serve the king, before you can be considered part of his holy nation and have his name on you, you first have to have your heart changed. Is yours changed? I mean, really changed. And I'm not talking about, I came to Christmas, I came to Christmas service, and I sang those songs, by golly. I am talking about, do you believe God's word that you are a sinner and you're hostile to God? I mean, really believe that. That if God tells you what to do, it's like that peanut allergy. You just start... I don't want to do that. Do you do that? Or do you say, God, your will be done, not mine? I... And if you believe that Jesus died for you, Scripture says the way you live that out is you accept Christ and you start living your life differently. 
deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. And I'm telling you, it's not easy. Your friends aren't going to necessarily like it. You might not be able to drink as much eggnog as you wanted to. Or have that, sing that song they sing on Elf where it's cold outside and I'm going to live that out. Your life might change. And you might get new friends and lose old friends. But I'm telling you, salvation is worth it. It's worth everything. So my question is, are you hostile to God? Or are you really his child? Because I think Christmas is more than just telling you a nice story. It's actually embracing the reason Jesus came. 